Hello everyone, this is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adaptive Physical Education. Super excited to be here today. Um, we're doing things a little bit differently today. Well, very differently actually. So today I will not be the moderator. Uh, I'm just going to provide a brief introduction. We have Dr. Barry LeVay, who's a contributor to the podcast. He gives me ideas. He works with me on a regular basis. Uh, he's been a guest several times as well, and he's a big uh, supporter of the podcast, and he's going to be on the show. He brought this idea to me, and he's going to interview Dr. Jeff McGubbin, uh, who is a pioneer in the field of adaptive physical education, who is somebody who recently has retired from the field, but has a ton of experience. And uh, Dr. LeVay has felt like we need to capture our history more. And one way to do that is to listen and document the histories and perspectives and stories of people that have uh, been pioneers in this field. Also, I need to give a shout out to Dr. Melissa Bittner, who also is at California State University, Long Beach, because she is uh, she did a lot of the editing that I normally have to do as well. So that really helped with the production of this. So anyways, this is going to be a three-parter and I'm planning on putting these out about a week and a half apart from one another. Um, and I'm also going to have an ongoing blog with this one. So the blog is just going to be updated every time that we have a new episode release. Uh, with that, I'm going to let Dr. LeVay take it from here. Hi, my name is Barry LeVay, and um, I'm a professor at, at Cal State University, Long Beach, where I'm the Adaptive Physical Education Coordinator, and I'm going to be the guest moderator today for this uh, What's New in Adaptive PE podcast, and I want to thank Scott for this opportunity for getting me involved um, with the podcast, and I also want to thank Melissa, who's assisting with the uh, technology and aspects of, of, of this podcast. So we're real excited about the podcast we have for you today because we're going to be speaking with Jeff McCubbin and he's going to share um, his insights regarding adaptive PE um, during his career. So before we um, get started, I just want to give you a, a brief background about Jeff. Um, you know, Jeff, after a very successful career in, in higher ed, um, recently retired in June from uh, as a dean at Colorado State University. Uh, he was in the College of Health and Human Sciences. And, you know, Jeff's contributions are, are many. I'm just going to mention a few, but he's um, been a member of the, a fellow member of the American Kinesiology and Physical Education Academy, which is very uh, prestigious. He was the past president of the National Consortium for PE for Individuals with uh, Disabilities, um, SHAPE. Our, our national organization recognized him for his um, professional – they gave him the Professional Recognition Award uh, for his work in, in adaptive PE. So Jeff's going to share his uh, insights not only regarding um, adaptive PE as a professional in higher education and teaching, but also as an administrator. And we thought it would be interesting to – get Jeff's insights as an administrator, because we haven't had very many administrators um, on the podcast. So we're first going to um, talk a little bit about Jeff's uh, professional development, his background, and his path um, to where he's, he, he uh, has gone. So 
Jeff, um, I know your path is pretty unique and varied, and, and um, you were, uh, like many people in the 70s, you majored in, in PE, and it was in a very traditional general PE program at uh, East Stroudsburg State in Pennsylvania. So how do you feel that the program, while primarily traditional J, you know, general PE, because adaptive PE was just really starting, how, how did it get you, prepare you for, to be an AP professional? It's a great question. And, you know, it's interesting because East Stroudsburg was a traditional physical education program. But uniquely, when I was there in, in the early 1970s, there were 13 different options within the physical education curriculum in terms of the directions you could go. And I, so I think it was uh, a longstanding uh, physical education program there, but hardly traditional. Uh, so everybody wasn't prepared to be a K-12 physical educator. You had a variety of different options. But there is no question that when I was at uh, East Stroudsburg State and, and for the history buffs within adapted physical education, um, the person I took the course uh, in adapted physical education from was a gentleman named Frank Sills. And Frank actually had been the former president at East Stroudsburg State, and he was on the doctoral committee for Hollis Fate. Uh, and so Hollis was wow. one of the preeminent uh, developers of what he titled special physical education as a way to help people understand what physical education abilities really was. So Frank Sills was uh, a forerunner. And to be honest with you, the content of that course that I got from Frank was much more of a corrective, rehabilitative oriented physical education program, uh, which is not what we promote an adapted physical education or adapted physical activity today. Uh, however, uh, Frank had connections with Hollis Fate, which led to some conversations, and ultimately I ended up doing a master's degree at the University of Connecticut starting in uh, the fall of 2000, I'm sorry, the fall of 1976. And again, sort of linked to history, now if you go back and look at the passage of 9414, or at that time called the Education of All Handicapped Children's Act, uh, that was just beginning. And so I was fortunate, very fortunate, to be offered an assistantship to go to the University of Connecticut. And this assistantship paid for my graduate education. And this was a program that Hollis Fate had much to do with creating and being a national leader in that area. And so uh, at East Stroudsburg, I took the basic content that was in a physical education curriculum, but I actually morphed out of the, the general uh, teaching track across K-12 and looked to go on and specialize uh, in graduate school in the uh, special physical education area at the University of Connecticut. And that led me to opportunities uh, where there were not programs uh, for children with disabilities yet but they were willing and able to provide access to the kids with disabilities. Frankly, they were very, they being the school districts in the Connecticut area, were happy to um, hand over, if you will, children who had uh, different learning styles or physical uh, mobility uh, for the students out of the University of Connecticut to come and work with those kids and then help the teachers create uh, ways to include kids in physical education. So, I guess from a historic perspective, because of my uh, age and uh, the time I started my master's degree program, it was right at the beginning of 
<coughs> for adapted physical education opportunities in the schools. Uh, prior to that time, those didn't exist, and uh, so it was right in the middle of, middle of it. And so, uh, really, the University of Connecticut was the, the launching pad for me to say, this is what I wanted to do. <clears throat> and I completed my master's degree there and, and moved on to another position. Well, you mentioned uh, that you went to the University of Connecticut, you know, and, and you talked about working on your master's. So you studied under one of the real pioneers in our field, Hollis Fade, who wrote one of the first textbooks. What what do you what would you take away? What did you learn from him? And and I know while you were at Connecticut, there were other students there that went on to have pretty good careers, like Walt Davis. So may, maybe talk a little bit about what you learned uh, from them. You know, it's interesting, <clears throat> Hollis. Uh, was uh, nearing the end of his career when I was there, uh, and he uh, was a person that uh, had high expectations for his students. Uh, he wasn't uh, engaged uh, a lot with the programs that we had, in part because he had another faculty member in the area, a person who was just out of his graduate program, Pat DeRocco. So Pat DeRocco was the newbie at the University of Connecticut working for Hollis to do much of the teaching and the oversight of the uh, programs for the students in the special physical education program. And Walt Davis, who then went on to Kent State, was a PhD student uh, at University of Connecticut at the same time. So I honestly had more interactions with both Walt Davis and, and Pat DeRocco in their leadership uh, of the content of our courses, but it was Hollis's vision for this program. Uh, and it, things that come back to my mind is, and we had the opportunity because of our grant at the University of Connecticut, Hollis would arrange to bring in key people from around the country uh, in the area of adapted or special physical education. Uh, and just sort of an, an anecdote from the, I remember sitting in a you know, a circle of 15 students kind of thing, talking to Julian Stein and Hollis Fate about their vision. And they argued like crazy over whether it should be special physical education or adapted physical education. And I just mm -hmm. remember being in awe of uh, that opportunity. Um, and it was all because of Hollis Fate's leadership in that program. And Hollis had others who had worked with him. John Dunn had departed from the University of Connecticut at that time, uh, and, and John, the position John was in was the one that Pat DeRocco took over, uh, and then those connections at the University of Connecticut actually led me to other uh, academic and work-related experiences that helped shape yeah. my career. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people who um, don't realize, like in the 70s, a lot of us, we were just still figuring it out, and uh, when we share with students that prior to 1976, you know, 75, mm -hmm. a lot of children with disabilities didn't even have to go to school yet. And, you know, it's, it's hard to believe. And, and uh, those were interesting times. I think the other thing you shared that was interesting is that a lot of us, when we're in graduate programs, sometimes we learn quite a bit from um, our classmates and fellow students, you know, and can learn a lot from them. So um, I, I think the other thing that's interesting is from there, after you uh, were at um, your master, you know, you got your master's degree in Connecticut, you went to uh, Virginia and, and you um, went 
went and worked in a hospital setting and learned quite a bit about orthopedic disabilities, right? And yeah, that's yeah, that yeah, that's correct. And it was the <clears throat> frankly, it was the University of Connecticut connection <clears throat> that led to the phone call uh, that had an opportunity for me. Um, one of the previous PhD students um, at the uh, at the University of Connecticut it was a guy named Greg Shasby, <clears throat> and Greg was. Um, uh, on the faculty at the University of Virginia, and so phone calls uh, between the University of Virginia and, and University of Connecticut and Hollis Bay led me to apply for a position, uh, which was then called the Children's Rehabilitation Center as part of the University of Virginia hospital system. And so I worked at the Children's Rehabilitation Center, and, and it worked with primarily orthopedically uh, children with orthopedic impairments, but not totally. We also had children who had a variety of uh, social and behavioral issues, children who had diabetes, we had children who had scoliosis, we had children who had a variety of different things, but the, the majority of the kids that we worked with um, uh, were kids who had uh, CP or some other kind of neurologic or orthopedic impairment, and it was a tremendous learning experience for me because this was, uh, these kinds of programs don't exist in this current uh, medical uh, model that we have because children would come back for five days every year for sort of a, what we called a tune-up, basically looking at their educational needs, their OT, their PT, their physical education needs, their social and emotional needs. And so the kids would have a returning of service. Uh, and so we got to know kids over more than one year. Uh, we would certainly have kids that would come in from acute for acute reasons, following surgery and so on and so forth. But um, these children uh, were able to come in and, and stay for five to seven days, um, oftentimes once a year, uh, just to help keep them uh, engaged at the highest level that they could be. <clears throat> and so my ability to work with classroom teachers, <clears throat> social workers, physical and occupational therapists was uh, tremendous. And my actual appointment was in uh, a Department of Recreation Therapy which um, enabled me to work Ron Adams. Ron, uh, for those that uh, go way back like yourself, Dr. LeVay, uh, was the principal author of a book called uh, Game Sports and Exercises for the Physically Disabled. And so Ron had written one of the first books that I know at the time when I was at the University of Connecticut, it was a required textbook for the class that was typically titled uh, adapted physical education for orthopedic impairments or something like that. Uh, and so that was, had brief descriptions of the hundreds of different kinds of orthopedic impairments and then how to modify activities or programs or devices to help keep those uh, engaged in the activity. And so I landed in a position there, which was awesome. And Ron Adams looked at me and pretty much said, I, I'm in a revision of my book. Would you like to write a couple of chapters? And it was uh, a no-brainer from my perspective. Uh, and so I wrote chapters uh, in the first edition that I worked on in uh, dealing with aquatics uh, and skiing and modifying some of the stuff that he had written before. And then in the next edition, I had a little bit more responsibility. So um that was a, a great opportunity, but it was a link from the University of Connecticut to the University of Virginia that helped open that opportunity. 
and then while I was at the Children's Rehabilitation Center, I was given the opportunity to enter the PhD program at the University of Virginia that uh, at that time, Dr. Greg Shazby um, and uh, Dr. Pat Bird had received funding, again, from Office of Special Education Programs, which has been a, uh, a huge uh, opportunity. So I was able to receive an assistantship to go to school to uh, complete my PhD program. And in the context of my PhD program, I continued to work uh, not as an employee, but with people at the Children's Rehabilitation Center um, as an opportunity for me to do some research and, and other things uh, necessary as part of a PhD program. So that's where you, is that where you started to gain your research interest dealing with not only orthopedic disabilities, but uh, MS, as well as MS? Um, I know this well, is yeah. with the scholarly interest yeah. is, what would you learn working with that population yeah. that would be helpful yeah, to the audience? Sure. Well, I think what I learned with that population, one, uh, we, I was involved with the helping Greg Shazby develop at that time the CP games in the state of Virginia. So competitive sport opportunities for people with uh, cerebral palsy were just emerging in uh, the mid to late 70s, or early, I'm sorry, early 80s. Um, and so from that work and interaction with some people, national caliber CP athletes, <clears throat> I came up with a, uh, a dissertation topic that I thought was really interesting at the time. Uh, and people hadn't uh, begun to do this kind of research. Uh, and it was frankly counter to what uh, the PTs and OTs were hoping uh, would be a direction. So uh, my first uh, foray into research that was published was uh, looking at the effects of uh, resistance exercise training, specifically isokinetic resistance exercise training on adolescents with CP. Um, and the question was really, would resistance exercise help improve uh, neurologic performance as measured by movement uh, uh, where it was anticipated by the therapist that any additional muscle tone would be negative to movement and counter to what would be productive. So, but was, it was because my work at the Children's Rehabilitation Center, probably a third of the kids I worked with, I became very familiar with uh, some of the issues and some of the bigger challenges that came up is um, watching those kids with CP have very intensive programs until they were four, five, six years of age, and then lots of things falling off in terms of not right. their body parts, but the, the support services they had for continued motor mm -hmm. skill development really dropped off. And so uh, I was interested in the adolescent with CP who was clearly uh, losing mobility as they started to grow and age and, and gain body weight. And so I was trying to see if there were ways to uh, prevent that or encourage uh, more active mo uh, mobility and strength training to help them stay active. Uh, but so you, know, you mentioned the Go ahead. Yeah, Jeff, <clears throat> what I think is really interesting, and a lot some of the audience won't realize at that time, there were a lot of people who questioned whether people with cerebral palsy should even be involved in sport and it might be contraindicated and, and like you're talking about, and that's, you know, today that, that, you know, we don't even give that a second thought, but at that time that was, you know, a, getting them involved in sport was sometimes was questioned, you know? 
Yeah, I think that's, yeah, there's no, that's interesting. You're, 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 there's no question that people with CP for a whole host of reasons have struggled in managing to be in more, uh, they had isolated games for themselves. They, while they could qualify for participation in what are now called the Paralympics, it uh, was challenging for them due to uh, various classification systems. So we were trying to create uh, a separate uh, sport performance and it was run through the National Association on Cerebral Palsy out of Hartford, Connecticut. And, uh, and so the real question came, could uh, athletic training of some form actually improve motor performance in other areas. And uh, right. I think it's, it, it's evident that it could, could do that. But uh, I mean, really, I had PTs and OTs question whether it made sense to take kids with CP to athletic events because they would just get all excited and the excitation right. would increase muscle tone and that would be negative for their other uh, motor development. But uh, anyhow, so we've learned a lot over the years mm -hmm. as to where and how people with disabilities can be involved in activities. You mentioned a bit ago, uh, Dr. LeVay, about uh, multiple sclerosis, and, and that actually came about, my work focusing on that population came about later, but I'm going to mention something uh, in hopes that uh, this is sort of the, what we know. Uh, I was at the Children's Rehabilitation Center at the University of Virginia Hospital. We had a therapeutic pool that we invited people with MS uh, in the evenings to uh, like one night a week, they would come in and use that pool to swim. And so I got to learn a little bit about MS, but counter to what is known today, there was so little known about it. So we were putting people swimming with MS in water temperatures that were close to, uh, I think it was around a, a high nineties, close to hundred degrees, very warm mm. pools. They loved right. it because it felt good. But we know now that that's one of the worst things to do for people with MS. They, in fact, should be swimming in cooler pools than the typical population because they're able to make, have function in cool pools for longer. So actually putting people in hot pools was not a good idea. But frankly, uh, the people liked it. Nobody seemed to have oversight of it. And, uh, and uh, so I actually learned after the fact that uh, what I was doing in the in – the, uh, I guess it was being the late seventies was probably counter to what was done, but the, sure. the work related to my interest uh, and following the university of Virginia, I went to uh, Ohio state university and worked with, again, some leaders in the field, Paul Jansma and Walter Ersing. Uh, and I was asked to coordinate a grant. Uh, so I completed my PhD at Virginia and then went to Ohio state for three to coordinate a grant that was called project transition. And this was a little bit of a left turn for me in terms of trying to, uh, the work related to people with CP had to really be put on the shelf for a little bit. Um, and the work that Project Transition was focused to do was the effect of uh, fitness, physical fitness and hygiene related personal uh, grooming skills. Uh, how would that impact the ability for people who are institutionalized, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who are institutionalized uh, in their ability to transition to community living. So the whole goal was to see, could we train people with uh, uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities 
so that fitness would improve, so their personal hygiene skills would improve, and would they be more successful in going out in the community following such training? Um, and to be honest with you, I learned a ton at Ohio State, but uh, I also, uh, most of what I learned was how challenging it is to work within a large developmental center and help make behavioral change for people who have spent much of their lives there. Uh, and so uh, what was proposed to be done by this uh, grant funded by um, the Office of Special Education Programs, again, the same funding source, um, was probably way unrealistic because they were saying that we would be able to train uh, in the hundreds of people with disabilities and the skill set of the individuals who uh, we had the opportunity to work with were really limited. So part of what I had to learn was how to modify, change, and um, uh, really adjust a research intervention protocol that uh, was not possible, frankly, uh, with the skill set of the people that we had and the staffing that we had available to us. So it was really an interesting dynamic. I, uh, really welcome the opportunity to uh, work with this population, but it also started me to think more about lifelong health and well-being relations with disabilities. Right. I think, yeah. like many of us, and, and I'm not trying to say what adapted physical educators do is is uh, not correct, but I do believe, and, and that's when I started to change and shift my thinking that what we need to be focusing on are um, lifetime skills, and we need to be focusing on uh, health as a as an overarching, uh, as opposed to skill development. You know, if, if you step back, we're all guilty of it, uh, Barry. That um, our efforts to do research were usually by the amount of time we had to do a six or eight week intervention to get the data that we could and show that we could make a behavioral change. But we never followed up six months, nine months, 12 months, four years right. later. Uh, and so sure. most of the work done early on in adapted physical education said, could we train? I'm summarizing and I'm probably not being very kind to a lot of people, but could we make a skill development change or of some type? Uh, could we help people jump higher, uh, move a little quicker, uh, maybe even lose a little weight uh, uh, over an intervention period. But we never started looking at uh, other factors that were creating barriers for people uh, to be, to live uh, longer, more healthy. Well, I, I think, you know, during that period too, that most of us were trained developmentally and we look at, you know, moving along that, that continuum and we didn't always, we're just starting to think about functionality and looking at um, the the person top down, you know, that top down approach. And so um, that's one of the things that I think was interesting. I think Ohio State really shaped you because I know you were one of the first uh, person I remember talking with you back then and you were talking about public health uh, for the disabled. And this became kind of a, a research line for you and, and, um, uh, was so, you know you started to do some work in there. Any anything else you want to share about that um, and this well, idea of public yeah, health and, it, and the disabled? Well, perhaps. I mean, and and maybe that was a little bit of a shift for me as I started to work with people with MS. I mean, people who have MS are typically adults, right? They're 
It's most yeah. often diagnosed between age 18 and 25 or up to age 40. So it's not school age, school age issue typically. Um, uh, and then I was also starting to, the people I worked with in Project Transition were all adults. They were in developmental centers and had been there their whole life. And they were trying to see, could they live in a community and could we help them do that? Um, mm -hmm. And for a whole host of reasons, uh, starting to look at uh, more of an uh, adult factors uh, that were uh, of issue for both people with intellectual disabilities as well as, uh, now that didn't mean the courses that I was teaching at Oregon State University. So after Ohio State, I eventually eventually got to Oregon State University uh, via Texas Christian University, but mm. uh, I, I continued to work and, and prepare teachers. So it wasn't as if I lost interest in, in realizing the importance of what, uh, what we could provide and what we needed to try to develop uh, for our public schools to be more inclusive. Uh, so, but my research interest uh, did change a little bit. Um, it's, it's always interesting to see what factors uh, influence how, um, and sometimes the factors are, are much more based upon the community you live in and the opportunities sure. that exist there than um, generally what your interests are. So Yeah, that's uh, a great point. Yeah, but I've, so, been, I've continued to be concerned about uh, public health issues, and um, I guess it would be probably 15 years ago now, we started to, uh, even through the programs at Oregon State University, we started to encourage our some of our PhD students um, who are getting a Master's of Public Health degree in line with their PhD because the factors that influence health are often community-oriented barriers, such as transportation, education, employment, access to um, services that keep people from being healthy, active, and, and engaged. And, and so the, the challenges, uh, so it goes well beyond the schools. Uh, and I really believe that uh, some of the more important work in our field in the, I'm trying to remember the years, probably in the 2000s. Some of the work that Jim Rimmer was doing, some of the work that Gloria Cron was doing, looking at community-based uh, interventions for health. Right. Uh, and I thought mm -hmm. that that created a shift in our, a critical shift, in, not uh, a critical shift in our program where that started to gain traction as a, an attractive way to go. And so uh, many of my doctoral students eventually worked with and uh, adult age populations, and um, I don't know if that. And, and you know, it's one of those things that uh, many others continue to work in the developmental side, and, and I think that's all. Uh, we have a, a lifespan approach, and we should have a lifespan approach to adaptive physical. Health. Um, and so, anyway, that that's what sort of influenced my thinking was the opportunities for the people I had available in the Corvallis community, and the recognizing that uh, lifetime, what we were doing in the public schools uh, was really lost its gloss, if you will, if people would then graduate from a high school, not be employed, sit at home and do nothing. So all the work we were doing in the high school was going for naught unless we had a continual transition program or opportunities within the community uh, for employment, uh, uh, you know, independent living to the extent that is possible, and recreation and 
activity that would maintain health. And so um, you could teach skills all you want, but if they didn't, if we couldn't transition that into the community, I think we are losing um, our hold of what important work we were doing in the K-12 system. That's a great, great message. And I couldn't agree with you more is that what are, what are we doing with them once they graduate? So that's great. And um, so Jeff, uh, um, uh, thanks for giving us a little bit of your background and um, the road that, that you've taken. Um, so this is ending part one and, and we hope you will join us for part two where we're gonna discuss Jeff's university teaching research we offer some good insight to young professionals entering in the field. So those people who are um, early in their career, Jeff's gonna provide some really good um, strategies to help you with your, your teaching and your research.